This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. This week on The Extraordinary Story, Jesus is on his relentless road to Jerusalem, but he's using his time well. He's using the road as a school of discipleship. We'll meet two rich fools today, three, I guess, counting ourselves, and learn the need to be ready at all times for the end of time or the end of our time, the death. Last week, Jesus described how single-minded his disciples have to be when they set their hands to the plow. This week, he warns that wealth and selfishness will dog us every step of the way. But there's a very simple solution, and I'll mention that at the end. So a reading from Luke chapter 12, skipping material we have already touched on and saving one significant bit for next week. But starting at the beginning of the chapter, when so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they trod upon one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisee, which is hypocrisy. The parable of the rich fool. One of the multitude said to him, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he said to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I started with a little bit at the very beginning of Luke 12 to give us some context. Many thousands gathered together, so many that they trod upon one another. So that's the scene, a huge crowd of people pushing and swelling and crazy in their eagerness to see, hear, and touch Jesus. And Jesus takes the occasion to say, first, avoid being a hypocrite. So what we have here is Jesus addressing a huge number of people and telling them to be authentic. There are two ways to avoid hypocrisy, two ways out if you claim high ideals but you are in reality just a loser. One is to give up on your ideals and identify yourself clearly as a loser. The other is to live up to what you want to be. Jesus is advocating the second approach. He wants us to live up to our ideals, and everything we look at today will be him describing how to do just that. Luke shares one question from the crowd to show how Jesus went about teaching people how to achieve personal change. And what a question it is. If you had one chance to ask a question of Jesus Christ, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, what would you ask him? 
Well, you have the chance every time in prayer, and too often, I at least, ask a question very much like the guy we see here. One of the multitudes said to him, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. Now this is very much like the question we will hear Martha ask later, which is essentially, make my sister help out. Jesus refuses both prayers and helps both petitioners see what was wrong with their prayer. They acted like Jesus is here to help them get what they want. He is not. He is here to help them become who he made them to be. Friend, who appointed me as your judge and arbitrator, as another translation has it? He asks this, I imagine, with a smile, the same way he probably said to Martha, 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 you are anxious and worried about many things. But maybe he didn't say it with a smile. Maybe he got mad. The Ignatius Study Bible says that he uses man, not friend, and that this was a stern way to speak to somebody back in the day. Smiling or not, he tells the brother who wants an inheritance what he will tell Martha. He isn't here to solve family fights in their favor, but to call them to change in such a way that the fight is irrelevant. Take care to guard against all greed, for though one may be rich, one's life does not consist of possessions, is what he tells the man. And later we'll hear him tell Martha that focusing on God is the one thing necessary. He looks past their question at their hearts. And I find that he does the same thing with me when I pray. We should absolutely come to Jesus with our cares, small and large, but we should be attentive and ready for his answer. Lord, resolve my conflict at work, we pray. Lord, fix the disagreements in my family, we beg. Lord, we need more money, we demand. What can we expect Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, to say when we ask him for such things? Well, to Lord, resolve my conflict at work, he might respond, love more, serve more, and there will be no conflict. Or to the question, Lord, fix the disagreements in my family, he might respond, but will you refuse to bear the cross of family opposition that I bore when my relatives thought I was crazy? Or to the request, Lord, we need more money, he might respond, do you need to receive more money? Or do you need to spend less money? Do you need to write a budget and keep to it, maybe? And what exactly do you want this money for? Of course, Jesus is saying something wise here, and that reminds me of Bob Dylan. As I pointed out as a teenager, after years as an atheist, I was beginning to possibly allow myself to believe in God when Bob Dylan's songs reached me. A line from one of Bob Dylan's Christian songs struck me and has always stayed with me. Did you ever wonder just what God requires? Or do you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? Like the brother in this story, and like Martha, we too often treat God as a means to get what we really want, which is not him, but a more comfortable life. But the idea that God is here to give us something is idolatry, because it makes God a means to a thing that we consider better than God. That's why the gospel is filled with lots of really, really good questions that people put to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And which is the greatest commandment? And are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? Are all great questions to ask Jesus. This is also why Jesus gave us the Our Father, his personal guide to asking the Father stuff in prayer. 
There, he teaches that when we ask God for things, we should ask in the context of finding a place in his kingdom, doing his will on earth as it is in heaven, and seeking his forgiveness. Ask for all you want that meets those criteria. When Jesus taught the Our Father prayer, he said, What father among you would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish? That's what we see with questions like this brother's and Martha's. They ask for something snake-like, a biting, squirming strike at their sibling. But Jesus gives them a fish, a nourishing plate of wisdom. In this case, he gives this man a parable for the ages. There is a rich man whose land produced a harvest so big he tore down his barns to build bigger storage barns. This is a cartoon image of the culture of consumerism that we know all too well, which is always tearing down whatever speaks of simplicity to make way for excess. But more on that in a second. Right now, listen to the rich man's speech in the parable. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, Self, you have ample goods laid up for many years. I will relax. I will eat. I will drink. I will be merry. That's 11 references to himself of one kind or another. More than 17% of the words this man speaks are personal pronouns. He's all about me, myself, and I. He's so self-centered that he never prays. He says all this to himself. But God speaks to him. You fool, this night your life will be demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus adds, Thus will it be for all who store up treasure for themselves, but are not rich in what matters to God. Well, the frightening thing about this parable is that it is not in the least bit extreme. It is exactly what we all do in America, one of the richest societies in the history of the planet. St. Augustine would have been describing many of us when he described the man in this parable. Quote, He was planning to fill his soul with excessive and unnecessary feasting and was proudly disregarding all those empty bellies of the poor. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. It would of course have been digested on earth, but in heaven it would have been kept all the more safe. End quote. St. John Paul II described this same situation in Centesimus Annos. Quote, It is not wrong to want to live better. What is wrong is a style of life which is presumed to be better when it is directed towards having rather than being, and which wants to have more, not in order to be more, but in order to spend life in enjoyment as an end in itself. End quote. We live in a world that's overwhelmed by consumerism. The relentless focus on having lays waste to being. The gospel spells out just how consumerism wrecks us. First, consumerism destroys our family life. The guy in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And with those words, this man redefines all the members of his family, reducing both his father, who died, and his brother into numerators in a financial equation on his balance books. Second, consumerism crowds out our spiritual life. How often do we turn God into a financial aid office instead of the Lord of the universe? Third, money gives us a false sense of fulfillment. 
The happy rich man in the parable focuses on storing up treasures on earth. One's life does not consist of possessions, says Jesus, but we don't act that way. When we die, we will leave all of our nice things behind and take with us only our soul, and our soul will be shaped by how selfish and how generous we have been. Paradoxically, though, there is a fourth way consumerism wrecks us. It makes us anxious and depressed. Truth be told, our lives are not so much like the fat and happy foolish farmer as they are like the stressed out laborer in the book of Ecclesiastes, a reading which is often paired with this at Mass. Ecclesiastes says, Vanity of vanities, says Koheleth. Vanity of vanities, all things are vanity. Here is one who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and yet to another who has not labored over it, he must leave property. This also is vanity and a great misfortune. But what profit comes to a man from all the toil and anxiety of heart with which he has labored under the sun? All his days, sorrow, and grief are his occupation. Even at night his mind is not at rest. This also is vanity. End quote. For most of us, our work life is not marked by the triumph of a bountiful harvest as much as by the toil and anxiety of heart of one who has labored under the sun, the way Ecclesiastes has it. Statistics bear this out. In 21st century America, work-related stress dwarfs other forms of stress, and it's getting worse. It causes hypertension, insomnia, and increasingly heart attacks. Truly, for many of us, all his days, sorrow and grief are his occupation. Even at night, his mind is not at rest. This is vanity. This makes us even more foolish than the foolish man in Jesus' parable. He plans to eat, drink, and be merry to celebrate his wealth. We comfort eat, self-medicate with drink, and binge watch shows to escape from our world. But the stress still wakes us up in the middle of the night when we eat, drink, and binge watch some more. We can and should pray for the way out of these problems. But now we know how Jesus will answer our prayer. He will say to store up treasures in heaven. St. Paul describes how to do that. Think of what is above, not of what is on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in glory. When Christ your life appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. End quote. I love that because St. Paul is clearly describing the maze we are in and telling us to look up above it to Christ. And the first effect of our baptism should be to clear our vision to see the world the way God does. This world is a thin veil shot through with his light, as we will see next episode. It is a place being created right now through Christ crucified, where his beauty, truth, and goodness fill everything, showing us our ultimate destiny and the glory beyond. Speaking of which, let's look at what someone of clear vision does in this maze of a world in another gospel passage from Luke 12. Watchful Servants Jesus continues to speak to the multitude, saying, Let your loins be girded and your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the marriage feast, so that they may open to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the householder had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have been awake 
and would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The faithful or the unfaithful slave. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward, whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly, I tell you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the manservants and maidservants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will punish him, and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act according to his will, shall receive a severe beating. But he who did not know and did what deserved a beating shall receive a light beating. Every one to whom much is given, of him will much be required. And of him to whom men commit much, they will demand the more. So here Jesus is telling his followers how they are supposed to live when he is gone. They're supposed to stand ready between the second and third watches even. That means between 10 p.m. and sunrise. In other words, we need to be ready at all times, even in the middle of the night. And he tells his followers, all of us, as we shall see, that in relation to him, we are all servants at his beck and call. We may be prophets, priests, and kings, but we are prophets who, like him, are rejected, priests who, like him, sacrifice ourselves, and kings who, like him, come to serve and not to be served, and to be crowned with thorns, not jewels. This is a lesson the apostles then and now need to learn. They knew Jesus was a king, and together they expected to chalk up victories like David and riches like Solomon. Instead, he tells them to sell your belongings and give alms. It's a kingdom of love and sacrifice, not power and privilege. The apostles expected to be masters of the masses. He tells them that they will be servants instead. Gird your loins and light your lamps, he says. In other words, tuck in your tunic to work harder late into the night. They expect to start commanding troops at his side. Instead, he says, he will go off to celebrate while they work like servants who await their master's return from a wedding. That part about returning from a wedding banquet is key. It shows that Jesus in his divinity has a totally different vision of reality from ours, a vision from above the maze. We feel sadness and dismay as we watch what is happening on earth. God does not. He knows that he is in control. He knows how his plan will work out in the end. As St. Cyril of Alexandria put it, quote, This plainly shows that God always dwells in festivals that are fitting for him. In heaven above there is no sadness whatsoever, since nothing can occasion grief. End quote. So, when the Lord comes, it will be after celebrating, not after worrying and fretting. He will be in such high spirits, in fact, that, quote, he will gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them, end quote. That's a beautiful image of what God's love will look like in the second coming, but it's also an image of what we see every Sunday at Mass or Divine Liturgy. Jesus stands before us in the Eucharist, ready to meet our sadness with his joy. Instead of girding his tunic, though, he comes in a host and a chalice and in a confessional, putting himself at our disposal. 
We have to be ready to open immediately when he comes and knocks, Jesus says in the gospel. This applies to his coming in what the fathers of the church called the first watch, our youth, or the second watch, our adulthood, or the third watch, our old age. Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds vigilant on his arrival, whenever it is. What is the mark of a Christian? St. Basil the Great asks and answers, quote, It is to watch daily and hourly, to stand prepared in that state of total responsiveness, pleasing to God, end quote. At any rate, Peter asks a great question. He says, Lord, is this parable meant for us or for everyone? Jesus' answer touches on the church right now. In reply, Jesus asks, Who then is that faithful and prudent steward who the master will put in charge of his servants to distribute the food allowance at the proper time? That essentially means, I mean you, Peter, and you, apostles. Or today it means, I mean you, Pope Francis, and you, bishops and pastors. Then Jesus' words describe two kinds of church leaders. One kind is lax and indulgent. These clerics lack faith. They think the master is delayed in coming, and so they abuse the servants and eat and drink and get drunk. Some neglect works of mercy, living in luxury while people around them suffer. Some neglect the sacraments such that numbers of baptisms, marriages, confessions, priests, and mass attendants decline while they're in charge. The other kind are vigilant and sober and distribute the food allowance at the proper time. That would include food for the body and works of mercy and food for the soul, God's saving message and the ultimate food, the Eucharist, which baptism, confession, and confirmation prepare for, marriage continues through time, and holy orders provides in life and before death in the sacrament of the sick. They find ways to show people how freeing Jesus' message is, even the hard parts. They would rather share challenging truths than false consolations. We are all servants in Jesus' story, popes, bishops, pastors, and lay people. But the leadership of some raises expectations high. How high? Jesus answers by saying something that sounds extremely harsh to us. The servant who knew his master's will, but did not make preparations nor act in accordance with his will, shall be beaten severely. As for those they neglect, each one who was left ignorant of his master's will, but acted in a way deserving of a severe beating, shall be beaten only lightly. Ouch! St. John Chrysostom says of this passage, For all things are not judged alike in all, but greater knowledge is an occasion of greater punishment. Therefore shall the priest, committing the same sin with the people, suffer a far heavier penalty. End quote. But St. Bede wants to make sure lay people don't feel like we're off the hook. He says, Much is often given also to certain individuals, upon whom is bestowed the knowledge of God's will and the means of performing what they know. Much also is given to him whom, together with his own salvation, is committed to the care also of feeding the Lord's flock. Upon those, then, who are gifted with more abundant grace, a heavier penalty falls. But the mildest punishment of all will be theirs, who, beyond the guilt they originally contracted, have added none besides. And in all, theirs will be the more tolerable, who have committed fewest sins. End quote. So I like his final point. The one way out of this is to commit fewer sins. But there's one thing that's very clear here, the elephant in the room that we should address, and that's that Jesus sees punishment as part of his spiritual message to us. There will be pain 
in the afterlife and when he returns for those who are not properly prepared. Well, it's impossible to exaggerate how much this fact changed my life when I first understood what it means. I learned it by reading St. John Henry Newman, who said in his parochial and plain sermons, Holiness, or inward separation from the world, is necessary to our admission into heaven. Because heaven is not heaven, is not a place of happiness, except to the holy. It is fearful, but it is right to say it, that if we wished to imagine a punishment for an unholy, reprobate soul, we perhaps could not fancy a greater than to summon it to heaven. Heaven would be hell to an irreligious man. End quote. He said an unholy man would be as unhappy and as pained in heaven as we are with strangers who are all committed to something we don't care about or whose language we don't know and can't learn. He said, quote, God cannot change his nature. Holy he must ever be. But while he is holy, no unholy soul can be happy in heaven. End quote. In other words, the summer sun will burn you, and you can either acknowledge that the sun is real or pretend it's not. If you're going to spend summer days outside, pretending the sun is not a furnace of ultraviolet rays will mean a lot of physical pain and suffering in this life for days at a time. Pretending that God is not an all-consuming fire of holiness will mean a lot of spiritual pain and suffering for eternity. That's what Jesus is describing here. God is not a heavenly policeman enforcing rules, letting some people in and keeping some people out. He is holiness itself, and our decision to accept or reject him is less like the decision to break the speeding limit or not, and more like the decision to wear sunscreen or not. One of the truly insightful stories in Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels is a land of Lugnag, where people are immortal, and therefore they have no ambition and achieve nothing, because without death there is only apathy. My spiritual life was exactly like that before I fully accepted the reality of hell. I had an immortal soul that would be given a free pass by an eternal God, so I didn't care to do anything to better myself. Once I learned that the reality was actually very different, I was scared straight. We Catholics have some vague sense that the need to worry about sin and hell has somehow been lifted from our lives. I know I often feel that way, but it hasn't been lifted from our lives. The reality that Newman expressed is still real. God is all holy, and whether or not he will tolerate evil in his presence is beside the point. The point is that evil cannot tolerate being in his presence. We'll talk more about hell in the weeks to come, because Jesus talks about it a lot. But for now, let's sit with this. If we are not living the life we should, when the Master comes, his presence will be unpleasant in the extreme. If we are living the life we should be living, it will be pleasant in the extreme. Let me read a bit of the passage in Luke 12 that I skipped just now, though I think I randomly read it for rhetorical effect in the Good Shepherd episode. But it's the part where Jesus says, quote, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give alms, provide yourselves with purses that will not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. There you have the secret that runs through everything I read today. There you have the answer to hypocrisy. 
How do you become the kind of person who can withstand being in God's presence for real? Well, this is how. God is the ground of all being. He told Moses his name is I am because he is existence himself. So the secret is to realize that here in the maze of space and time, we stare at walls and we miss the reality of who God is. I'll explain next time how Jesus says we can see him right here in the maze everywhere. But for now, Jesus is saying we need to reject the life of the rich fool that builds unreal castles of materiality. We need to reject the false frivolity of a servant abusing his master's house. Instead, detach yourself from wealth. Bishop Barron speaks about this by saying we are haunted by non-being. We fill our lives with wealth and comforts that will fade and disappear. Instead, Jesus wants his followers to make purses that do not wear out and to be wise stewards who bring up what is best from stores of what is real. Bishop Barron compares the material world to a firework that lights up the sky in splendor for a second and then falls to the ground as ash. Everything finally is a firework, says Bishop Barron. Everything will disappear except for our soul and God. So we want to focus on what is eternal instead of what will soon be gone. Therefore, we should all give away everything we have and become homeless with the homeless, giving them the message of the gospel and forgetting all else, right? Okay, no. I mean, absolutely many people should do that. Many people do that. But most of us do not. Not even most religious do that nor should they. There's an old story about a saintly monk who, during recreation time, was playing billiards. Red ball in the side pocket, he said, calling his shot. Brother, what would you do if you knew Jesus Christ was coming back this instant, said a brother monk. I'd hit the red ball into the side pocket, he said, for our rule calls us for recreation right now, and living our rule is our way to holiness. Well, that's the message of this gospel. Do what you're supposed to do, as if your life depends on it, because it does. One of the monks here who graduated from Benedictine College had great advice for a college student I know who was trying to discern his vocation. Father Jeremy told him to start doing what he was supposed to do, excellently, every day. The results were transformational. He was a student, so he started trying to be a great student by studying hard and asking questions. He was a friend, so he started showing more kindness and caring to his friends. He was a son, so when summer started, he helped out more around the house and engaged his parents more. He was a brother, so he started interacting more with his siblings. In so doing, he discovered huge stores of untapped potential in his life. It's amazing how much changed just by doing the basics, he said. Not just his GPA, but his enjoyment of learning, too. Not only his relationships, but his peace of mind as well. He was happier than he had been in years. So, tuck in your robe, light a lantern in the darkness, and go to work. If we do what we're supposed to do, not only will the waiting be better, but the reward at our judgment will be astonishing. Blessed are the servants whom the Master finds vigilant on his arrival, says Jesus. Amen, I say to you, he will gird himself have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. Lord Jesus, help us keep our attention not on what we don't have or what we will soon lose, but on what we do have and will never lose, you, the one who is and who was and ever shall be. Help us find the solid foundations of our life in your extraordinary story. 
The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.